Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. Um, I'm reading from Mark chapter 14, verses 1 to 11. Now, the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany reclining at a table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them any time you want, but you will not always have me. She did, she did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly I tell you, Wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in her memory. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Let's just pray together. Whoops. Okay, Father, thank you for this great passage. Thank you for Jordan's story. We pray your blessing on him, but thank you for life transformed and your power to change someone and give them an identity and a purpose to change their emotions and to bring them that sense of belonging. Thank you for this amazing story of this woman whose life has been changed. And may she provoke us to think about the kind of church we want to become. Amen. I wonder when you've ever um, come across something you, you describe as priceless. Money cannot buy it. Maybe it's the love of a parent, a spouse, or a sibling. Maybe it's a long-standing friendship that's been forged through ups and downs and shared memories, experiences. Maybe it's a holiday you went on. It was just the memories from this holiday. Maybe it's a picture or a gift someone made for you with their own hands. It's like just for you, just from them. You can't put a price on some of those things. Maybe it's a family heirloom passed down the generations. Here's one from my daughter, Annabelle. Happy Father's Day. And a picture of a tie that I never wear. Um, and then inside, dear dad, happy Father's Day, love from Annabelle. You can see the corrections she's had to make. And then cross, you know, love and hugs and all the rest. And she says, my daddy is quicker than Superman, braver than Thor, stronger than Spider-Man, tougher than the Hulk, my hero. Awesome. Could you put a price on that? I don't think you could have. I wonder what it is for you. Uh, in my work, I work in sales for a tech company called HubSpot. It's the opposite. I'm constantly trying to tell people that if you spend this much money with us, this is the return on investment you're going to get. And it's, it is very much a calculation. It is not something that you can't put money on. This is how much it costs. This is what you're going to receive. This is the benefit. And whilst the HubSpot software, what I sell, will hopefully help them, it's not going to change their life. It's not going to change their, their hearts in any way. But it's something about extravagant kindness, uncalculated love that softens us, that changes us, that melts us. Because we can't put a price on it. It's not transactional. It's not calculated. The story we're going to look at today is of a woman who's experienced from Jesus this kind of extravagant love. And in return, her life has been so transformed, she offers it back 
in this amazing act of uncalculated love and devotion. But in contrast to her, the religious leaders, the disciples, and particularly Judas Iscariot, are calculating everything. They have the right answers, they say the right things, they think the right thoughts, but inside there's nothing but selfish preservation, angry judgmentalism due to the continuous calculations in their hearts. They've, not, they've never experienced or allowed themselves to experience a deep love that God has for them. Now, you don't have to live in Dublin for very long to realize that, the, that most people in society are fed up with calculated religion. Something that's ordered and nice-sounding and at best stuffy and boring and at worst condemning and poisonous. And you don't have to read the annual census to know that the church in general is not growing, it's not flourishing, it's not permeating society like the perfume in this story permeates the room. We have to humble, we have to be humble enough to admit that. So as we think about what kind of church we want to become as we go forward, we have lots to learn from this amazing woman. It's uncalculated love that changes the world. It's reckless kindness that transforms communities. It's unabandoned devotion to Jesus. It's the fragrance that spreads throughout the world. Now, if you've been with us through the last few weeks uh, as we've looked at Mark's gospel, you'll realize a couple of things. First of all, he's often, as, uh, as we've looked at, sandwiching events between some certain narrative. And he does that here. So he starts by talking about the religious leaders wanting to kill him. He finishes by talking about Judas Iscariot going away to think how he can kill him. And in between, there's a story of a woman who pours out oil on on Jesus. So the story is sandwiched. And secondly, we've been noticing the contrast that he's continually talking, Mark's continually showing us, this is how the disciples are acting, and this is how someone you wouldn't expect to get it right acts. And the disciples are blind. And in this story, we're going to see the hatred of religious leaders, the betrayal of Judas, and the blindness of the disciples. So I want to reflect in this talk about some of these contrasts and and think about how we can become more like this woman. And I want to do it with three little titles for this talk, the, the extravagant act, the offensive act, and the deeper act. So let's start with the extravagant act. Jesus is in a house just outside Jerusalem on the eastern slopes of the Mount of Olives in a place called Bethany. The house is owned by a man called Simon the leper. We assume he's not a leper anymore, though we're not told that. We assume that Jesus has healed him. Then there's an unnamed woman. And it's interesting she's unnamed because in John we know it's Mary, the the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And uh, Mark probably wrote earlier, we didn't have this eyewitness detail that John, who writes 15 or 20 years after Mark, had. So she's unnamed in the story. The kingdom of God is full of millions of unnamed heroes. Maybe that's the point too. So Jesus is reclining at the table and this woman comes in with a very expensive jar of perfume made of nard. Nard is an oil-like perfume extracted from the root of the nard plant grown in India. It's not one of the lower quality brands uh, sold on the Bethany marketplace. In fact, we learn that this is worth over a year's wages, 300 denarii. One denarii was worth a man's wages in those days. So in 2016, the average wage in Dublin was 45,000 euros. So this perfume in modern context would be something like 50, 60, 70,000 euros. And an alabaster jar is a vessel with a long neck, and typically the long neck is then sealed, and you break it off to pour out the perfume. Probably a family heirloom, we're not told. Now, whatever you think is going on, whatever your view of this, this is extravagant. The, the, and, and the reason it's so extravagant is everything in the story speaks of something irretrievable. The jar is now broken. 
It's never, ever going to be fixed. The perfume is now poured out, 50,000, 60,000 euros worth of perfume in one go. And now it's gone, it's never going to come back. This is never repeated. It's extravagant, it's irretrievable. But the other thing the story speaks of is vulnerability. For Mary to come in and interrupt goes against all the social norms. We maybe not like it, but it was a patriarchal culture, and typically the men would have been eating while the women would have served. That's how it was back then. And so not only does she come into this scene and start talking with Jesus, she does a lot more than that. She touches his his head, and in John's Gospel, we learn she touches his feet with oil. Was this a sexual advance? What is going on here? This is a real moment of vulnerability. It's intimate. It's awkward. She's risking a lot, and she's going to get the wrath of everyone else in a minute for what she does. And the smell must have been overwhelming. Jesus' head and feet are now covered in this gooey ointment. If you're like me, you can't stand having dirty hands. You have to wash them, and let alone feet and, and your head and feet. And this, this ointment and this smell is filling the room. And the first question the people in Bethany must have had I'm sure it's the question you and I or we should have as we read Mark's Gospel today in Dublin. Why such irretrievable extravagance? Why such intimate kindness and vulnerability? Why? Why did she do it? Secondly, how's everyone going to react? Will they, and how will Jesus react? Will he scold her? Will he banish her? Is he disgusted at her? Will he push her away? Well, before we look at how he acts... This is an extravagant act. Let's think about how it becomes an offensive act and think about the disciples' reaction. Some of those present were saying indignantly indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly. On first reading, you might go, well, that, that makes good sense. They wanted to use this money and give it to the poor. What a waste. And particularly at the Passover time when the crowds in Jerusalem would have swarmed and there would be more poor people around and they, they were ready to celebrate the festival, no doubt the poor were very obvious and the money could have been used elsewhere. But look a bit closer. First of all, they talk about being indignant and the Greek word there is they spoke angrily to one another. Now righteous anger in the face of injustice is a great thing, but to be angry about how someone else uses their resources when it's theirs And to talk about it amongst yourselves, well, that's self-righteousness. That's a judgmental spirit. It's not theirs to talk about. It's hers. She can do what she wants with it. And this only goes further when the last thing, they rebuked her harshly. And the sense of the Greek word there is to snort at her, to glower at her, to treat her with disdain and consign her to the gutter as worthless and vile. And again, you might disagree with someone, but you shouldn't demonize them. It's her possession, not, not, not theirs. And so here's, here's the important thing. You read it and, and, and you go, this money could have been given to the poor. What, what a great thing to say. But underneath it, there's just judgmentalism and anger and self-righteousness. Remember, Mark is wanting to contrast this woman and her attitude to the disciples and everyone else. So what does Jesus do? What's his opinion of it? Well, he defends her. He protects her. He stands up for her. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you'll always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. Notice that Jesus defends her priorities. She has done the right thing by taking care of me first and then the poor. A friend of ours, we went to a funeral uh, a couple of weeks ago, a friend of ours whose father had passed away. And for the last six months, they've known that he was going to die. They just didn't know when. 
Guess what they've been doing for the last six months? They've spent every weekend together as a family because it could have been his last, and, and he died two weeks ago. Because time is short, time is pressing, we've got to maximize it. Jesus is saying, given what's going to happen to me, I'm about to die, I'm about to go, I'm off to Jerusalem. What's going to happen in a week? I'm going to be slung out. She is spending the time and her money and her resources in the right way because soon I'll be gone. The poor you'll still have, but I'm going to be gone soon. So let's not misunderstand what Jesus is saying. Is he saying we shouldn't care for the poor? Of course not. If you've read any of the Gospels, you know that he's really passionate about the, core, the poor being cared for and he, and he pushes us to do it. But he's saying this act of devotion to himself is a higher priority right now because of his impending death than using that money for the poor. And you see, think what Mark's doing. He's saying there's this woman. She, we don't know her name at this stage. And there's something about her life which is wonderful. It's full of love, devotion, kindness, extravagance, wonder, or it smells beautiful, this life. And then you've got the disciples, and their lives are so tidy, and they're doing the right things and saying the right things, and they're giving their money to the poor, and yet underneath it there's anger. There's judgmental spirit. There's a self-righteousness, and it smells horrible. One is calculated. One is extravagant. One acts out of duty. One out of joy. One is full of self-conscious. How am I doing as a, as a person? Am I giving my money away? We're doing the right thing. The other one is beautifully self-forgetful. There's no self-consciousness in her. She does this amazing thing which is going to cause all kinds of troubles for herself. What's the difference between living a life for God that smells beautiful and one that smells horrible? Your motivation. Your motivation. You can give money to the poor but do it for the wrong reasons. You can give the money to the poor and do it for the right reasons and one will smell beautiful and one will look like a tidy religion. Do you remember the, the, the verses from 1 Corinthians 13? If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all my money, all I possess to the poor and give my body over to the flames for the poor but do not have love, I gain nothing. Paul says you can give all you have away and you can even die a martyr's death for a good cause and you're not doing it out of love. Well, what are you doing it for then? You're doing it for yourself in some way. It's selfishness in some way. It's to prove yourself in some way. It's to do the right thing because you want to put God in your debt or you want to show others how great you are. Let me tell you a story that gets this across. Once upon a time, there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. So we, so we took it to the king and said, my Lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or ever will. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. The king was touched and discerned the man's heart. And as he turned to go, the king said, wait, you're clearly a good steward of the earth. I own a plot of land next to yours. I want to give it to you freely as a gift so you can garden it all. And the gardener was amazed and delighted and went home rejoicing. Now, there was a nobleman at the king's court who overheard this. And he said, my, if that's what you get for a carrot, what if he gives the king something better? So the next day, the nobleman came before the king, and he was leading a handsome black stallion. He bowed down and said, my lord, I breed horses, and this is the greatest horse I've ever bred or ever will. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned the, his heart and said, thank you, and took the horse and dismissed him. The nobleman was perplexed. So the king said to him, let me explain. The gardener was given the carrot to me. You were given the horse to yourself. The motivation for your righteous acts is everything. 
One is, devo- is about love and joy and giving to God and giving to others. The other one is about making sure we get rid of any guilt in our lives or making sure we seem good or we do the right thing or, or we put God in our debt or, or we prove ourselves. And it's not actually, you can love the poor without loving the poor. That's the point. When you find, what you find when you read the Gospels is Jesus is constantly banging heads with the religious leaders over this issue of their motivation for their righteous acts. And yet the irreligious people seem to warm to him. And I don't think it's incorrect to say that the main deterrent from people finding Jesus in the Gospels is religion. And I say religion, when I say religion, I mean that nice, tidy, moral, self-righteous spirit that creates a crowd of people who talk angrily with each other about what others are doing wrong and then demonize them for doing it like they are in this story. You see, the Bible says there's two ways to keep God at arm's length. One way is to be very moral. The other wants to be very immoral. One way is to keep all the rules. The other way is to break all the rules. One way is moral conformity. The other is self-discovery. One is the way of religion. One is the way of irreligion. Both are ways of saying, I want to be my own savior and Lord. I don't want, to, I don't want God in. I want to prove myself in some way. I want to find freedom, identity, purpose by myself, and I'll do it through religion or I'll do it through irreligion. Here's what's dangerous. The irreligious people know they're doing it. And they probably don't mind. Yeah, I don't care about God. The religious people don't realize they're keeping God's at arm's length because they're blind like the disciples and they think their righteous acts somehow gain them some kind of acceptance before God and in society. A true embracing of God happens when you repent of your sins and repent of the selfish motivations for your righteous acts. Then you've repented and embraced God. You repent of both your irreligion and the false motives for your religion. How does it come about? How do you get that kind of change in your heart where you've transformed the whole motivational structure of why you do anything at all? You first have to experience this extravagant love and realize the debt that you owed and, what, and that Jesus actually did counter cost to pay for that debt. Let's look at the final thing then. How do you get to this stage? How do we become like this woman? Richard Lovelace, a quote here I want to quote, talks about this. People who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus, apart from their present spiritual achievements, are subconsciously radically insecure people. Their insecurity shows itself in pride, a fierce defensive criticism of others. They come naturally to hate other cultural styles and other races in order to bolster their own security and discharge their suppressed anger. If you you first haven't experienced that God loves you because of Jesus then all your righteous acts will come from another motivation and it will lead to this pride, judgmentalism, and demonizing of others. So how do we get there? We need to know a deeper act. Do you remember I said Mark sandwiches the story, talking about the killing that is going to happen? Um, and did you notice at the start of the story, verse 1 and 2, he says it's Passover time. What was Passover? Passover was when they celebrated that God's people had been rescued out of slavery in Egypt through the Red Sea uh, at the Passover time. And it was celebrated with unleavened bread because they didn't have time for the yeast. And so they had to eat unleavened bread. And it was this story of rescue and deliverance out of slavery. And Mark is saying what Jesus is about to do on the cross is a second exodus. It's a second Passover. It's a second rescue. And so at the end, he says this. But he gives us another hint. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, whatever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. We've looked at this. Kings in the Old Testament were anointed with oil. Samuel anoints David. 
The word anointed one, when you put it in Hebrew, is Messiah. Anointed one in Greek is Christ. Jesus, this woman gets it. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. I've come to anoint him as my king and say he's in charge. Everything the Old Testament pointed to, it's in him. And I've come to give him the anointing he deserves as king. But she's, Jesus says, no, 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 she's not just anointing me as my king, as, as king. She's anointing me for my burial. She's understood that her king must die for her. No one else understands. No one else can get it. She's got it. My king is going to die for me. She's understood the gospel. And, he's, and, and why does he die? What is Jesus doing in this moment, in this story? He is rescuing her. He's protecting her from the accusations of men. And on the cross, he's going to protect her from everything that could condemn her. All sin, all guilt, all shame, all darkness. Anything that could get out of hell, the devil, everything. He's going to protect her in a cosmic way. And this story shows this protective work of Christ. Jordan described it. I got given an identity. I could have a fresh start. All my baggage of beating people up. I could have a new start. He's going to protect me from everything that could condemn me. Not just he's accusing men around me. And what's the cross going to take? It's going to be irretrievable. He's going to die. He's going to be poured out like this perfume. He's, he's, he's going to fully give himself. And it's going to be vulnerable. He's going to be punched. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be spat upon. His beard's going to be pulled, Isaiah tells us. He's going to be jeered. You saved others, you can't save yourself. He's going to cry out to God and God's not going to answer. No one is going to protect him. It's going to be an amazing moment of vulnerability as he is left all alone. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So this woman and anyone else who says Jesus is king can go unprotected. Everything that could condemn me, all my sin has been dealt with. Why is this woman overflowing? Because she knows that Jesus is her king and the king is going to die for her. Do you? Has it changed you that much? You see, religious people are never that bad. They don't see their sin as that bad. They think they can earn it somehow. And Jesus' death to them is therefore not sweet-smelling fragrance. It's a failure. It's tragic. It's confusing. It's a waste. It's like this perfume. It's unnecessary. Why did Jesus have to die? He didn't have to die for my sin. I'm not that bad. But this woman goes, no, we are. And when you realize the debt that you're owed and what Jesus is doing, and he's going to protect you, He's going to give you a, a self don't we? Don't you long? You wouldn't have to worry what people think about you like this woman. She doesn't care. She barges right in. She goes, if Jesus loves me, I don't care. Don't you long for that self-forgetfulness because you know that the one person in the universe that matters cares for you and protects you. When you get it, you give your money to the poor much more extravagantly and from the right motives and you don't care if anyone knows about it. It's out of gratitude. It's not cal- well, it might be calculated, but it's not out of a calculation of what is the least I can give away. It's a different kind of calculation that happens. And when you find people that disagree with you, you, you can still talk with them and embrace them and discuss and talk about your disagreements without demonizing them. And your whole life suddenly becomes beautiful rather than calculated. The motivational structure of your heart has changed. Has your heart been so changed by the fact that your king had to die? for you, or are you still too self-righteous to admit that at all? If we're going to be a church that makes a positive difference in Dublin, we need to love Jesus more than we love the poor. Because the more we love Jesus, the more we love the poor. 
it will be for the right reasons and it will be beautiful and it will be extravagant and it will be much more fruitful. It will be much more sweet smelling. The more you love Jesus, the more you love the poor. The more you try and love the poor without loving Jesus, you end up like religious leaders. You're very judgmental of everyone else who doesn't join you in what you're doing. Jesus wants to change our hearts. Look, let's finish here. This story captures our vision. Spiritually, a life transformed. We want to be a church that sees people's lives change and find a freedom that they could not believe. And we're unashamed of this, as this woman was unashamed. Jesus is king, and he came and he died and he rose, and you need to know him. Culturally, we want the, the kind of fragrance that this, you know, this perfume has had to just spread throughout society and sweeten and soften not just hearts but communities and all the sectors I spoke about earlier. And socially, we want to champion the poor and the oppressed, but for the right reasons, out of the right motivation. This passage holds it all together. We want to be a church on mission to see people come to faith, to see the city blessed, and to see the poor helped. So look, how do we do it? We've got to know him. We've got to know him more. We've got to know him deeper. We've got to be more honest about the reasons why we do things and allow him to soften us and change us and that we might become a fragrance. So let's stand. We're going to sing to finish and I'm going to pray and, uh, and then we'll have some cake. <laughs> so let me, uh, let me pray as you stand. Father, we thank you for this story. We thank you for this woman's life. We pray that we might be a church that's so touched by your love, so amazed by what you've done, so uh, overwhelmed by the cost that you would die for us and that you're our king, that we would then have a much more reckless, extravagant, wonderful, uncalculated devotion to you, but also to the poor and to one another. And I pray that you'd challenge us where we have a religious spirit and it's, we're doing the right things, we think the right things, but it's not about you and it's not out of love. It's something else. It's duty. It's selfishness. Transform us, Lord. Change us. And may the fragrance of your love come through us to this city and spread and soften many hearts and lives and communities. In your name. Amen.